Welcome to Isms That Cause Schisms, a podcast ministry of Calvary Global Network. I'm today's host, Jeff Geip. In the first series of Isms That Cause Schisms podcast, Brian Nixon, Professor Brian Nixon, and I introduced our listeners to a host of isms, philosophical and intellectual systems that, at any given time, have a propensity to cause divisions within the church. Now, you may be asking, what is an ism? Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines an ism as an abnormal state or condition resulting from excess of a specified thing. On today's podcast, which is really a bonus podcast because we didn't cover it in our first episodes, we're going to be digging deeply into the ism of individualism. Brian... Professor Brian Nixon and I are actually sitting face to face for the first time since the beginning of this. Good to see you, Brian. That's right. And we're we're here at the CGN conference at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. And um, Justin, our guest, was actually the the featured speaker this morning. So poor Justin has has had to use a lot of his brain power today. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So before we introduce Justin... Maybe we should talk a little bit about what individualism is. Yeah, as we mentioned prior to coming on air, is that individualism is really what I would call a subset of personalism. And personalism is a very broad field in philosophy. There's many, many schools of thought. Um, As a matter of fact, a, a few popes, or at least a couple of popes, have been experts in Catholic personalism. But it's this idea of where does the person begin and end, um, how they define themselves, and then how does that person define themselves in relationship to the larger society? So um, depending on what school of thought you are, you know, the, the person could supersede society. So I don't care what society has to say about who I am. I'm telling you who I am, and you must come to terms with it. So I think using a different terminology, someone by the name of Greg Kokel wrote a book on relativism, and he defined it kind of as I relativism, that I make up my own truths in relationship to everything else. I don't care what society says. I don't care what culture says. I don't care what any religious moray says. I am the captain of my own ship. So if I say this, that's who we are. You better accept it. So usually a hyper-individualism, and particularly as we talk about today in sexuality, that this person is creating their own ship, if you will, and they're the captain of it. But I know Justin's going to touch on the fact that that also is kind of a, a misleading statement, that they're the captain, that they're the one individual in this thing. So that's a little bit of it. And um, there's a lot more that people could read about personalism. Yeah, very good. So I'm, I'm very excited to introduce our special guest. Um, he has written many papers on this issue and uh, just as a wealth of knowledge. And if, if you have a chance to do, um, you know, to go online and to watch some of the conference, Justin's message was spot on and just such a blessing. But Justin Thomas is the CEO and president of Calvary Chapel Bible College in Twin Peaks, California. Yeah. So glad to have you here, Justin. And just reading here that you have a, a master's of biblical and theological studies from Western. That's right. My right. Our alma mater. Yep. Very good. Uh, and he also has a... Um, a BBS at Calvary Chapel Bible College. He is currently working on his doctorate from Western Seminary. But most importantly, and maybe what has influenced you the most, is that you were a pastor in a church that was in a city known for the chop. What was all that about? Yeah, so uh, for 12 years prior to this year, I pastored a church in the Capitol Hill neighborhood of Seattle. I'm from the Pacific Northwest, and, um, and so we... Uh, we had lived on the fringe of Seattle for a long time and felt a need for gospel-centered churches in Seattle. And I was a part of uh, Wayne Ch- Taylor's church, and we would evangelize downtown. And we'd tell them about church on Sunday, and they'd be like, what What bus will get me to Montlake Terrace again? And we realized there was a need to come where all these people were. Um, and the, the Capitol Hill neighborhood is always been a fountainhead for Seattle culture and as such 
it's been a fountainhead of American culture, as Seattle has often been um, at the head of that. And so um, the the coffee culture, the the music culture, all those things are there. Um, and Capitol Hill is also um, it's also where the gay community came in, like they've done in many other neighborhoods, and took a neglected and worn out neighborhood and created this center of culture. And so. Um, our church was in the, the dead center of the neighborhood, you know, a block from Broadway. I've, I've heard, um, you know, our famous Seattle musicians play on top of the Dick's Burgers from my house across the park, um, right next to Pike and Pine. It's as Seattle as it gets. And uh, yeah, during 2020, in the midst of what we all faced with COVID, um, due to some continuous daily protesting in Seattle just down the street, which is not unusual. Most protests in Seattle either begin or end in Capitol Hill. Um, But this ongoing protest, uh, a decision was made by the city to evacuate the East Precinct, which is two blocks from our church, um, and this community developed and settled in in its place as an alternate community in the midst of the city of Seattle, and it was right literally on our front door. If you ever saw maps of the CHOP, which online were very popular, we were the only church on the map. We were right in the middle of it. And it was a weird juxtaposition because um, because we were in a time where we weren't permitted to have service on Sundays, which in Seattle really only lasted for about a month. But simultaneous to that, we were at our church taking care of literally thousands of people who were living in the park uh, without any form of basic public services like public restrooms, um, providing water, uh, quiet spaces, conversations, um, in in the midst of what was just uh, an incredibly unique and wild time. Like, I might be the only post-2000 uh, pastor who's ever provided sanctuary in an American city from an angry mob where we just had to say, no, this is a place of peace, and we are neither uh, defending this person nor are we going to join your mob of justice. That's not what we're here for. Um, so it was uh, a, a wild, a wild time, and um, and also an amazing opportunity that put us in conversation with so many people to talk about Jesus and why we were there when we weren't part of the protest, nor were we protesting the protest. Um, and then one day, six months later, from June to December, the chop continued. Um, it just blew away, and we never saw those people again. You know. So it's incredible. So I was blessed to spend time with Justin and his family a couple weekends ago where he was married to a beautiful woman named Brittany. And you have four kids? Five. Five kids. There were so many I couldn't count. Um, <laughs> and I learned, even though you don't fit the description, the Taylors make a pretty good jambalaya. Thomases, but yes. Tom- oh, boy. Yes, the Thomases. Thank you. <laughs> See, we got to know each other really well. Yeah, you uh, you were just concerned about the jambalaya, Jeff. That's right. You know, Brian knows me well enough to know that when I'm talking about food, that usually shuts off the brain to all over things. So, <laughs> I'm, I'm just glad we made the list. Yeah. You did. You did. So, Brian, how? What should we ask? Justin first. Well, I think one of the things that particularly for our listeners who who understand this in a hyper sense with personalism or individualism is in sexual identity. And I think if someone turns on the news, opens up the newspaper, gets on some chat room, that's going to be one of the descriptors, be it they use terminology such as woke or liberal or progressive or whatever the terminology being used. The, the point and emphasis is that this person, this individual, is self-creating who they are and usually thinking that they were born a different person and they're just morphing into the person that they were meant to become. So I think probably the first question, Justin, I would ask you is, since you've written about this and have, have had some papers on it, how would you, first of all, define this sexual revolution um, and then secondly, just maybe give us some insight as to how you were dealing with it, not only in your academic papers, but just, just practically, you know, with, with people. Yeah. Well, if, if we can just zoom out 
for a second, I think before we can talk about this issue in the context of sexuality, we have to recognize how influential it is on a broader level, you know, and it's something that I've thought about for a long time, and especially as I've talked with people who are concerned about this nation that has a Christian heritage and where it's going is we should probably own then our own children. Even if they're bastard children, there's a correlation between American history and the American present. And because Christians had a formative role in that, we have a significant responsibility in where we are as well. Um, and so recognizing maybe at the, the broad or the pop cultural level that we all have individualistic sensibilities, that it's part of being um, a, a modern American and the idea of being self-sustaining, the idea of being a self-made man. You know, these are, are modern American mindsets that we find in our Christian thinking just as often as we find in, in the thinking that is external to it. And so... Um, First, owning that that's the water we swim in and having the, the self-criticism to say, where are these things impacting my view of self, my view of God, my view of my neighbor, uh, is also really important. But there's no escaping the fact that the exhibit A of this right now has to do with our culture's views on sexuality in particular. Um, and I think, uh, you know, it's helpful here to consider... Carl Truman's work, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, which is exactly about this idea that the sexual revolution is based on a deeper revolution that's actually a, a hundred years in, and this is just the um, the frosting on the cupcake of an idea that we've embraced. Yeah, I, I, I like what you did. You First of all, particularly for uh, Americans, and now obviously I think 18 countries are listening to this right. podcast, but, but for Americans, individualism is... Part of, as you said, the water we swim in, it's part of our culture. We, we want to be a culture of, of individuals. Um, so, that, so I think that's, that's important, particularly for Americans. But I think probably other countries would, would see sort of maybe an individualistic, you know, maybe in a more modern context, that, that is one of their reigning characteristics as well. But secondly, uh, that, that point was really good. Maybe tell our listeners um, who, who he is, and so they, they're a little familiar. Yeah, so um, Carl Truman is a Christian thinker who's written a handful of books, uh, but, but what he's doing in Rise and Triumph and some of his other works right now um, is he's basically a philosophical historian. He's giving the genealogy of the way we think today and tracing it through history from the main thinkers who have influenced this. And some of the ones in The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self are known and regularly talked about entities. Um, you know, the, the, the death of God with, uh, with Nietzsche or, or Marxism. Some of these come in, but he does a good job of drawing in some lesser-known uh, or lesser-referenced uh, thinkers that have uh, really traced out and brought forward this thing, as well as he does a good job of recognizing that, you know, these thinkers are obtuse, rarely read in the ivory towers of culture, and yet there, there were artistic expressions of these things that took root in a very grassroots and popular level and, again, um, shaped the recipe of the, the water we swim in. And so uh, his suggestion effectively uh, goes all the way back to Rousseau and this sense that society and culture and the human world that we're born in is somehow constraining or restrictive from us becoming our true or healthy or whole selves. And um, again, we hear those ideas now and we almost take them for granted. But there was a time, of course, where your destiny in your career, who you marry, where you live, was all very socially derived, contextually derived, assumed by your birth and time and place, um, which again, I think we have a hard time even registering as a possibility, let alone it makes us a little sick to our stomach. Like there can't be a good and healthy life there. That's how deep these ideas go. 
So individualism, as we're defining it, is not only culturally significant, a.k.a. American or Western, but philosophically significant. It, it really goes back into to history. So l- let me share a quick story, and then we'll talk about maybe a hyper-individualistic thing, transgenderism and, and what have you. But um, right after you spoke at, this morning, uh, a pastor approached me, and, and and I told him what our podcast was about. And he said, oh, I've, I've got a story about that. He goes, a family member literally disappeared for five years. We, we didn't hear from this person. And come back five years later, this, this individual is now a woman. And they started off as a man, and now, now they're a woman. And, you know, have a whole new identity, have a whole new individual understanding of, of who they are. And then want other people who didn't journey with them to treat them as they now see themselves regardless of that person's confused or flabbergasted or had no idea they just show up literally as a a different person new name new identity everything so my question justin would be what how should we approach this as christians and you know, because this 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 is not going away. It, right. it, it's probably going to increase before it, it it settles down. But how, in your research and some of your papers, how have you handled this topic? Yeah, um, there's probably a few boards to the platform that we need to lay down, and one of them is uh, recognizing that talking about issues of identity is not as simple as biology. And that's neither for nor against either side. Those factors are a part of our self-determinations, a part of how we view ourselves. But there's always some sort of a lens or a framework through which we interpret the natural. And so we need to be careful here of assuming that because somebody has drastically changed their view of self, um, that there aren't natural, physical, biological factors. Uh, in the same way that uh, societies can bring to bear pressure on an individual that will affirm some things and deny others, those also uh, you know, are a component and in different times and places play out different ways. And so uh, that being said, what I think is defining here and important is the plasticity of identity and especially the self-determination the, the factor that the final arbiter of my sense of self is me. And then, so, uh, so we've got that uh, interpretive lens, the plasticity, and then the final one is, um, is a sense that that is not socially or biologically derived, but internally, where the true self, where the real identity lives. And so this is ultimately a form of expression of who you really are. Um, uh, so, so those factors have to be involved, but um, already we're starting to stumble into places where we're getting to a, a clear mythology or, or a falsehood that that's just not actually how it works. And Brian, you already mentioned a part of it, which is it might be internal and what you think of me doesn't define me, but what I think of me defines how you need to think of me. There's a need for social affirmation here that already, I think, opens the lid against individualism in the isolated, self-determining sense. There is an inherent need to be known and affirmed by people around us that, that starts to scratch at the surface of individualism and and suggests that it's an incomplete idea. Mm-hmm. So the, this idea that individualism is this rugged individual going out on his own and not caring about what another human being thinks is really not true. This individual ultimately does care what others may think. Yeah, and, and we can uh, you know, create really obvious, silly illustrations of it. It's every teenager who's trying to rebel against the culture and does the same thing that every other teenager does and dresses in the same way. Self-expression can be marketed in a store like Hot Topic, and that doesn't phase these hardcore punks at all. It's, it's, um, but I also think there's a, there's a, a deeper version of this, um, which the rugged individual, a good example is Robinson Crusoe. Like we hold up these heroes who survived great things, but they are 
um, formed by the society they were raised in. And Robinson Crusoe is a very different story if you just drop a baby on a beach. Um, the experience and the knowledge that makes up Robin, Robinson Crusoe is culturally formed and given with, without, um, without input from the child um, in the same way our genetics so much of there's a givenness to who we are as human beings that again might make us a little uncomfortable but is the baseline for who we are and is unavoidable there's no place from nowhere to begin your sense of identity what's interesting is is um as this topic you know increases in in national consciousness and people are, are, are discussing it you get a lot of people sending you links and oh, read this or, or hear this and I know one that's created quite a stir particularly in the transgender community is um, uh, Paul R. McHugh who is a psychiatrist and doctor and he was at John Hopkins University he's, he's now retired and he's come out clearly on the side that uh, transgenderism, he, 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 he says it is a mental disorder. And, and then he said, in, in, in when pressed, why, well, why are people you know, you know, doing it, at, or at least we're aware of it? And, and he used something very similar to what you're saying, Justin, is he, he said, well, the research shows that when there's a group of people, like you said, the teenagers, who are doing this, it's a mob mentality. They, they do it, they, they see it as a form of rebellion, and therefore they're jumping on this bandwagon and trying to rebel what they, what they see as against status quo. And, and Dr. McHugh would say that 50 years ago, if someone would have walked in to a, a psychiatrist or a, a hospital and said, well, I'm a female, and they would say, well, you're not, and let, let us help you see why you're a, a male. And, and they would usually do it biologically. But it is interesting that that table seems to be turning, that I know the WHO, the World Health Organization, has now taken transgenderism off its psychological disorders. Um, and I don't know if that's because of pressure from, you know, groups or whatever, but there are, I even think within the broader, you know, the medical field with psychiatrists, there's a back and forth of, of, of where, where does transgenderism sit? So, I mean, I, I, this is probably an oversimplification, but let's say, I, let's say Jeff, you and Justin are, are psychiatrists and doctors, and I walk into you, and, and I have an appointment, and I say, gentlemen, I, I really think I'm a cat, and I really want to now start a series of, of, of you know, biological adjustment surgeries because I want to look like a cat. And, you know, in, in today's world, we would kind of go, oh, okay, you know, sure. If you want to pay for that, you know, and the plastic surgeon's going, great, I'll do that because I'm going to get a lot of money from that. But the point is that 50 years ago, 60 years ago, that, that person was, you know, we, we got to sit down because you're not a cat. You know, you, you are something other than a cat. So my, my question, Jeff, you know, I, I know you've been signed a little bit, but how would you deal with pastorally? And both, you guys have both been senior pastors. I've never been a senior pastor. So how would you guys deal with this biblically? And then what has some of your research shown, Justin? How would you deal with it maybe more socially or psychologically if someone comes in and says, and, and I'm taking off on humans, but how would you deal with if someone says, I want to be a cat? Well, I think um, I wouldn't separate that from any other dysfunction. You know, um, we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we all have propensity to things that are different than what other people have. So for as a pastor, and I can only answer it on that level, I would simply love them and I would care for them. And I would try to reason with them um, by using God's word. And just defining how special we are, you know, we're created in God's image and his likeness. Because ultimately, all of this is an image problem. You know, we, we have a, we don't realize that we are image bearers of the creator of the heavens and the earth. And I think that when people come to that reality and that understanding, those things kind of fall away. You know, um, sinful man may have a propensity for adultery, for 
so many different levels, homosexuality or alcoholism or drugs and all of these things, all they are are ways and means of separating us from being in the presence of God. So encouraging someone that's going through these kind of difficulties of, hey, if you're in the presence of God, God will do that work in and through them. Now, let me ask a follow-up question. This comes from a reality that um, a a church, not, not our church in New Mexico, but a church that is down the street, there was someone who went through the sex change. He was a, he was a male, and then he went through the sex change, and he's he's now female, at least biologically or physiologically. DNA, he's still a male. How would you, as a pastor, deal with someone in that case who now wants to be in the church? They want to be part of it. They have went through it. Maybe there's even some remorse. And I heard that this particular person had some remorse that, boy, I did all of that. I spent lots of money. It was psychologically very difficult for me, but here I am. How do you deal with that? Um, I would probably pass that one on to Justin. (laughs) (laughs) Justin, I mean, I answered, I don't know that my answer would change. I think it might be the same, but I I am very interested in how you might deal with that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's, there's a couple of again. I, I'm I'm a very careful communicator, especially on these issues, and so I think there's some things to keep in mind. Um, one is uh, Brian. I have no doubt that there's a cultural edge and an overdiagnosis, and uh, there's money in it, so it's being promoted. All of that stuff is wreaking havoc on people. Um, but I also think the science points pretty significantly to actual uh, diagnosable conditions that are a part of this conversation. And usually we use the language of gender dysphoria, mm-hmm. which is an internal psychological discomfort with the uh, lack of overlap between your self sense and your physiology. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, and, and even there in, in that phenomenon, which has been studied quite a lot, there are some uncomfortable truths for all sides. So for example, the trans community likes to downplay as trash science. Um, one of the largest studies done on youth who had this experience and were followed to adulthood because about 80% of them effectively grew out of it. This was something they went through during puberty, during all the changes of their body in adulthood, no longer aligned. And the trans community um, doesn't like that because they're trying to create paths of access for teenagers right where they are. And any deferral of that is to keep them in pain and oppress them from who they really are. However, 100% of those 80% that desisted uh, identify as homosexual. And so really, it's just a misdiagnosis of something that's really going on there that, again, has to do with um, the way we perceive the world. But what's important pastorally in these things, especially when we're talking with non-Christians and we don't have the same ways to talk about the image of God, the vocation of male and female, and these types of things, is to recognize there are good, um, neighbor-loving, comprehensible places to have concern and the way that I always talk with people who are considering hormone treatment and uh, gender transition therapy is that they are taking healthy body parts and doing invasive surgery that doesn't give them the body parts of the other gender but but plastic facsimiles of and come with all sorts of complications and problems And again, I want to be careful with this illustration because it can become a way to just knock people over the head and and point at them and exclude them and all of these types of things. But I have read many times an illustration that I resonate with with anorexia bulimia, where here you have people who are incredibly skinny and their sense of self tells them that they are severely overweight. And so we rightly recognize the problem isn't in their bodies. And I would say the same thing to uh, those who are considering a transgender identity. Their parts are healthy and functioning as designed. And one of the things that individualism is doing now 
is it's deleting the physicality of ourself, the embodied nature of who we are. That is now just a vehicle or a means of expression. It's a canvas. Um, and, and so the body no longer gets a vote. But we as Christians have a very high view of the body, not just because God made it and called it good, but because God himself took on flesh to redeem us and for all of eternity will bear a human body as our Lord and Savior. Um, and so we have a very high view of the body. And to be honest, now we're getting into territories where Christians need to look in the mirror. Like, let's just be clear here. That if plastic surgery is wrong for those who are trying to change their identity, it's also wrong for those who are aging in ways that make them uncomfortable or who feel they need to be more sexually attractive or all of these things. Like we, again, swim in this water that says our body is just a vehicle that we drive around. The soul is all that matters. We did that. The, the platonic dualism that we incorporated into our Christian views, smuggled into you know, the Jewish understanding, that's all a part of this problem, and we're culpable there. Can I, um, can I ask you to elaborate on something? Mm -hmm. um, for our listeners, I'm going to be 64 in a week and a half, and so some of these cultural things are so new to me, yep. and I don't have a, a robust understanding of them. And so... Thinking about terms, something you used was dysphoria. I yeah. used dysfunction. Yeah. Would dysfunction be an insensitive way to refer to this? So um, um, the language of dysphoria I learned from Mark Yarhouse, his book, Understanding Gender Dysphoria, I still think is the first book that people should read on issues of transgender. He's a Christian and a clinical psychologist. He's, he's writing as a clinician who is seeking to talk help and care for people dealing with this condition. He would actually say that there's three primary frameworks we bring to this conversation. One is which one of which is a disability framework. And that one's the most natural for us as Christians because we live in a fallen world. And so there's something that is improperly functioning here. It's a real issue. It should call us to care, but it's not as designed. Um, he says there's also, though, a diversity framework, which is the primary framework of the LGBT community, that this is what makes you unique. It needs to be affirmed and celebrated. And he suggests that as much as that one makes us uncomfortable, we also need to find a place for these people that, that deals with the two underlying issues, which is the sense of identity as well as a place to belong. And so although diversity can be a place where where our faithfulness radar goes up and we think, oh no, we can't use this language, we can't talk about these things. There are pieces there that we have to be able to provide a script that allows them to flourish. Um, Eve Tushnet, who's a same-sex attracted Catholic, wrote a great newspaper article a long time ago where she said the church for too long has given us a vocation of no, which is no vacation at all, vocation at all. There has to be a way to give a yes to these people of what it looks like to follow Jesus and to flourish. And so what I would say, though, in, in juxtaposition of disability and dysphoria is that dysphoria gets at the discomfort. You can be disabled and come to terms with it. In fact, lots of people who deal with disabilities come to a place where, yes, this is a factor of my life. It's not defining. I don't draw my identity from it. And there's also benefits, positives here that I'm uncomfortable calling a disability. Um, and there's, there's need to bring that into the conversation. But dysphoria gets at that discomfort. And as Christians, we should care about that discomfort. Um, on issues of sexuality, too often the church denies the reality of experience because it doesn't fit in our boxes. And so um, intersex always comes up in these conversations because if there are people who don't fit in male or female, there must be room for a spectrum on gender. And, and on that, it's interesting. I went to see a movie with my son and there was a big documentary that's coming out uh, about what they call intersex. For most, there are different... Um, uh, it's usually Klein-Feltzer syndrome is, is usually what it is, where people are born with both, you know, a predominance or same-sex or, you know, intersex um, condition. But it was interesting that, that this whole intersex group, Klein-Feltzer syndrome, is, is now starting to voice. And I'm fascinated by how, where they're going to be coming from. Not 
then I'll probably go see it in the movie theaters. But it might be one of those shows that'd be like interesting to to see to hear how they're voicing their personhood as an intersex someone with Kleinsfelter syndrome. Yeah, and again, the distinction here I think is really helpful for um, all the intersex conditions, of which there's like five or six that represent the majority that fit under this umbrella, and then a handful of other things, um, all of which are best understood as sexual dis development disorders. In other words, we don't know why things went wrong, but we generally know when they went wrong and, and how, and they don't lead to functioning as design sexuality. Not just abnormal, but non-functioning, right? So the ability to produce offspring as genitalia, gonads, um, even hormones all work together to do, there's a break in that possibility. But what's important is these are all people who have physical issues that complicate their view of self. Um, intersex or uh, transgender people have healthy bodies and if they do have a biological issue which is an open possibility and the brain sex theory which is just a theory it's incredibly hard to test brains in utero but even the brain sex theory which is the only one that's kind of running says maybe these are brains that were washed in an alternate hormone because the the way the body was coding the gestation switches and so they develop very early. It's like week four, male gonads, male genitalia. But the brain doesn't happen until the third time trimester, and so maybe it's a wash in estrogen. But even there, the issue is in the brain and not in the genitalia or the secondary sex characteristics. Um, and so, so one of the things I think that was really interesting, Brian, that we're watching in our world is they there's a, an assumption that the views on sexuality are cohesive and universal for our culture, but actually there are arguments within the identities here that are incompatible. And so the transgender community in particular struggles with what they call TERFs, which are basically strong feminists who demand the recognition of biological womanhood as significant to personhood and experience. That uh, you know, Bruce Jenner changing his body to become a woman doesn't put him through the difficult experiences of being a woman. He gets to have his cake and eat it too. Um, but normally we would put that radical feminism and transgender or gays and lesbians all together. They even do it in their own acronym, but it doesn't actually work. There's incompatibilities in their sense of self, and that's one of the major problems with individualism is it makes community have diminishing returns and leads to isolation, which again is a problem for us as Christians because it's not good for human beings to be alone. Yeah, and you, you brought up a, 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 an interesting point. You're, you're spot on, Justin, that you know, in the news, you'll hear athletes who, um, um, Martina Natrova, right, the, the tennis player, she's come out strongly against transgender um, uh, males, females performing in competing, sports, right. competing, and she she's she's a, she's a lesbian, and um, and obviously a very pronounced, well-known name within the worldwide tennis. So you bring up a good point because the community, the divergence of opinion within what we like to clump L B G T Q, you know, we just clump everything in one big group, I guess, for convenience sake, but really there's a lot of divergence of opinions and understanding of not only their own physiology, but how they relate to other people within this grouping that they've been put within. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And it's, it's hard for me to imagine that that's going to resolve itself. Again, um, what we're talking about here is inherently fragmentation. And so it really only leads in one direction. And, and it's a struggle. You mentioned earlier that there's a need for others to affirm our sense of identity. That becomes, uh, again, a place of diminishing returns the more we're self-defined. Um, you know, there's a need for some semblance of a transcendence rulebook to make meaning. And the more that we make it internal, the more we make it imaginary. And, and that's not just because of true or false, it's because of the inability to build anything with it that's outside of our own minds. Yeah, you know, I, I look at this, you know, I think more from a philosophical standpoint, um, 
And I, in, in my philosophy, I always break things down to, to basically three, three components, ontologically, teleological. And the ontology is that something has being, that it has existence. And what is that immediate existence? And in the cases of some of the intersects, Kleinsfelzer and such, it does complicate it much. But then the teleological side, teleological has really two components. It's its, it's form and function. You know, what, what, what is its form and function? And then its intended end. What, what is it teleological, if you will, created to do? And so I see it from a, a philosophical standpoint that a lot of the, the issues initially were in what I would call the teleological argument. My form and function, I don't like it, and it's, I'm going to change it because I'm going to end up where I want it to be. But now it's even becoming more ontological. And that's where I think it's really confusing people because it's like, no, I, I was born this way. I, I am a different person than the body I was given. And, and again, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. And so it's, it's a very deep-rooted issue. So Because, again, it was easy to deal with it on teleological because then you could throw on your biology. And, well, your DNA says this. But people are getting to something a little bit more deeper. Um, and whether that's their psychology or their brain, you brought up that interesting, maybe their brain was washed in estrogen. There's, there's all these fascinating theories out there. But it, it still is a very, very um, tricky uh, scenario, N- not only in our world today, politically, culturally, but theologically and biblically in, in our churches. Right. And, you know, uh, one way to think about this is that they are trying to develop a sense of congruence an alignment that makes sense of who they are and where they belong again. And the primary approach of our times we could call organismic. It's, it's, it's directly related to that sense of an ontology. This is who I am, and therefore I interpret my world in this way. But teleological congruence is also a possibility where we say, this is where I'm headed, and therefore I interpret my circumstances this way. Anyone who is trying to get in shape or get healthy has a teleological view of their body. They're not thinking about what they are. They're thinking in terms of who they're becoming, Mm -hmm. and that becoming is formative. And it's the same thing for each and every Christian. We take a teleological approach of where God is taking us, and that determines the yeses and the nose of our life. And mm. that's something, again, I don't think um, the church has done a good job of providing yeah. here, a, a script of meaning that puts enough weight in the promised reality of what Christ will do to make mm-hmm. sense of the difficulty, the struggle, mm. the problems that we experience yeah. today. Yeah, and you, you just pointed out my third, you know, I always like to deal thing with ontologically, then teleologically, and then, then the third level is transcendence. Okay, okay, ontologic we've dealt with, teleological we've dealt with, but what's the transcendental nature? Where, where, at this point now, where are you going and what have you done? And of course, as Christians, that transcendent moment is we would say you can, in whatever condition, whatever state you're in, be it uh, uh, your intersex, your, you've went through a series of operations, you are now a new sex, that trans you know, that, that situation is you could become a new creation. You could become born again, you know, by the spirit of God. And that's kind of what you were coming back to Jeff, getting back to the spiritual heart of, of how we could minister to these people. Yeah. This conversation is so compelling. Um, and there, what I'm realizing is I have so much more to learn. Um, and I'm very concerned that maybe the church, um, maybe pastors directly are not spending the time to learn these things. And with that in mind, we, if you're, if you're alive, you can see that this ism has caused schisms in the church, right? And so Justin, um, we don't have a bunch of time left. Um, so I, I kind of think we should probably wrap it up as like, how can we, um, improve as the church, as the body of Christ in um, dealing with these issues. Yeah. And, and not only that, Justin, could you, if they're made available, some of the papers you've written, how would people get hold of you or do you have a website? Right. Uh, yeah, that, that type of thing. So in the moment, the most accessible way to learn about these things, the best resource I have is 
um, is a collection of lectures, 10 in length, that deal with the Christian view of sexuality from beginning to end. In fact, I don't really get to the issues until the second half. It takes five two-hour lectures just to walk through the moral logic and the theological significance of the Christian view of sex before we start talking about, okay, what about those who find themselves on the outside of these issues? Um, but if there's a way for your podcast to provide a link, I can provide a link to that. Um, that is the easiest way. And then Lord willing by not this coming fall, but the following, um, my sexual ethics class for Calvary Chapel Bible college will be available in high quality video lecture online. It'll be the best version of this resource I've ever produced. And so, so before you answer the, before you answer the question I asked, um, I think right now is a really good time to to our listeners to understand that Justin is the president of Calvary Chapel Bible College, and I'm unashamedly going to say, if you are listening to this and you have a young person that you're thinking should go to a Bible college, really consider Calvary Chapel Bible College. And, and Justin, this is the type of thing you really hope to communicate. Yeah, absolutely. And we're trying to even design our education, which really is for traditional students. We live up in the San Bernardino Mountains. It's not available to everyone, but even our sexual ethics class we offer as a block. If somebody wants to just fly in relatively affordably, we can house them and feed them. It's four days of intense five hours a day of class but we've put it there instead of the weekly mm -hmm. so that people can come and get it. And this gets us to point number one that I want to make, which is what you said earlier, Jeff. The, the church has to be willing to learn. Um, I think sometimes this is driven by fear and sometimes it's driven by pride, but there's a tendency to assume we already know the answer before we've even listened to the question. And I, I generally refer to it as a fundamentalist instinct. And doctrinally, I'm a fundamentalist through and through. But the fundamentalist instinct says, uh, effectively, we reject the questions of our time. And we get nervous about people who deal in them because that is a progressive way. Um, progressives are very good at hearing the questions. And then they go literally anywhere but the scriptures for answers. And we really need to complete the circle there. We need to take the questions we're dealing with today and go back to the scriptures as students and not as Bible thumpers to learn and to listen, recognizing that the church is great at getting it wrong and God is faithful to knock down our house of cards. And so the humility to learn internally in the scriptures and externally from experts, that doesn't mean that we swallow everything the medical or the psychological or the cultural consensus says but we still need to understand the views of our world and like the book of Proverbs, recognize that the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom, but the observational world we live in is also one of the ways God communicates to us. And so learning, I would suggest, is the first place uh, to go. And then the second thing is just um, treating people like image bearers who, uh, like us, live in a fallen world and fallen bodies and need a savior um, is such an important place to start. And then uh, that's where we start. And then as we move through, we need to do so with the pastoral wisdom that recognizes that sin makes messes. And it's not always our job to untangle every mess. It's our job to help them move forward towards a, an ultimate horizon where all messes will be untangled. But, you know, I always think of Jacob in the book of Genesis. He, he shows up in Bethel. Let's imagine he walks into the local church at Bethel and he says, hey, I grew up in a Christian family. I've been away from God for a long time. I've made a mess of things, but we just buried all our idols under the tree and I'm ready to get my life back with God. And the pastor says, okay, great. And he goes, all right, let me introduce you to my wife, my other wife, my two concubines and my 12 kids. <laughs> Right? It, there, there's a sense where all the way from the garden, there's no going back. There's a flaming sword backwards, but in Jesus Christ, there's always a way forward. And I think sometimes we don't have a way forward because we're concerned about what's backwards. And we have to have a pastoral instinct that's willing to walk with people through the mess, knowing repentance has a trajectory, but the pace uh, the pace is different. Mm, yes. uh, there needs to be room for time, for growth, for understanding, for discernment. 
um, and that it is diverse as the sinners were counseling. Um, that where someone is and where God is calling them to take a step next is custom fit. Not not in the individualistic sense we're talking about, that they get to choose their own path. It's not a choose-your-own-adventure, but it is contextualized to where they are. That's really good. So good, so good. And and I, I know we're wrapping up here, Jeff, but I really do f- would encourage our listeners to to seek out Justin's uh, series because th- yeah, this we'll, issue is we'll not sure. going away. This issue is not right. going away and dealing with it biblically and humanely and Christianly, I think is going to be uh, very important for the church. Yeah, we'll be sure and have uh, the website in our show notes for you guys. So uh, by the time you're listening, you will see them. Won't be difficult at all. <laughs> I guess the last question, Justin, that we would like to ask you is, um, how can we, the listeners, Brian and myself, be praying for you and your family in this new venture that you have set up in Twin Peaks on the, the Bible College? Oh, yeah. Um, I think what is primary in our minds right now um, is, is discerning what it is that God wants to do now. And, and this is Calvary Chapel as a whole. We have this great legacy of what God has done. And we all admittedly want to see him do it again. But we don't want to hop in a time machine and live through the same thing. We want what God wants to do for us now. And um, the Bible College is, this language is harsher than I mean it, but I'm tired. It's running on the fumes of that identity. And now we're trying to go, okay, what does the Lord want to do now? And the continuity is rigid. It's the same word of God. It's the same spirit. It's the same commitment to equipping people for all their callings. But the contextualization, right now, we live in a fog. Our whole culture knows that we just let go of the trapeze rung behind us, and we're assuming there's one coming towards us in the darkness. Every answer that we give right now should be tentative on where God is taking our world. Um, But it's also a time to be listening and prepared to hear what God has for us. And I need that just as much as anyone, and I'd appreciate prayer for that. Very good. Thank you so much, Justin. And please be praying for Justin and his family and for the Bible College. Um, It's something that we're all so passionate about. Every one of us have a very close connection to the Bible College and have throughout the year. So on behalf of Calvary Global Network and Professor Brian Nixon and myself, Thank you for listening and continue to listen. There will be other episodes coming out soon and we just appreciate your prayers. Thank you and God bless you.